Well, God is faithful to His covenant. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. And we, who are partakers of God's new covenant, we can count on His protection and His provision as well. And so this morning, you see, we're going to turn our attention to the book of Esther in your Old Testament. Please open your Bibles to Esther chapter 1. We've been going through some Old Testament narratives, looking into the life of Saul, looking into the life of David, spent a week looking into the life of Ruth and Naomi, and this morning, we're going to take one week to cover this awesome book, the book that is named after Queen Esther. You see here, she is a courageous queen, queen of the Medes and the Persians. Now, when it comes to the stories that are in God's Word, we learn so much through God's storytelling. When we look back at the time of Israel's initial creation, when God brought the people of Israel out of slavery, and he did so through a mighty prophet who performed amazing miracles, the kind of miracles that have never been repeated in history, the most spectacular being the parting of the waters of the sea in order to provide salvation for the people of Israel while bringing destruction to Israel's enemies who were pursuing in order to kill and to destroy God's covenant nation. And so whether God delivers through a mighty prophet and through mighty miracles or whether God delivers through flawed people through his providence behind the scenes, God delivers. And I think providence may be a more amazing miracle than anything else that is within the Bible. When we think about the signs and the wonders that are in the Bible, such as the parting of the Red Sea, they are there to get our attention, to make us realize the power that God has, he who created the heavens and the earth. And yet, we recognize that normally in our everyday life, we don't see that kind of power on display. That doesn't mean that God is not active. That doesn't mean that God is not present. And so the book of Esther is a special book for us to be able to get a glimpse into the extraordinary providence of God in ordinary life. And that's the way that God deals so often with us now in our situation and all that we face in this life. And so the book of Esther has much to encourage us. In fact, that's what we are reminded of in the book of Romans, as Paul wrote to the Christians. He said, whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and the encouragement of Scripture, we might have hope. And that's what we as Christians need. We need hope. We look around at the world and, and we see that the wrong seems oft so strong. And we need to be reminded that when the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And so that we have encouragement from the scriptures so that we persevere in following God's will and God's word even when it looks very dark, even when it looks very grim, even when there's no real reason for hope in what we see around us, we remember that God is the ruler yet. Amen? So let's start in Esther chapter 1. And I want to begin by reading the opening verses here, verses 1 through 4. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces, in those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, 
In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. We'll stop there for a moment. And so the events in the book of Esther we are shown are historical events that take place during the reign of this king of the Medes and the Persians in the city of Susa named Ahasuerus. Now, Ahasuerus is the biblical name, the Hebrew name, for who is known in Greek as King Xerxes. And the events that are recorded in the book cover about 10 years, from 483 B.C. to 473 So we've moved ahead quite a large bit in our study of the Old Testament from the time of David, as we looked into his defeat of Goliath last week, over 500 years now into the future, to the time of Xerxes, king of the known world, these 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, including the land of Israel, the land of promise. For the book of Esther takes place during the time of the exile, When the Jews had been taken by Nebuchadnezzar from their land, Jerusalem had been destroyed, the temple had been destroyed, and the people are living in a foreign land, and it has been several generations now that they've been living in these foreign lands. The Babylonian Empire has given way to the empire of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Great have passed on, and we come to the reign of Xerxes, I want to help you understand the historical positioning of the book of Esther by reminding you that this takes place between the first return of the Jews to Israel and the second return of the Jews. That Cyrus the Great, he had decreed that the peoples who had been taken captive could return to their ancestral homelands, including the people of Israel. And so Zerubbabel was the first who led the people back around 538. In 538 B.C., Zerubbabel led the first group of Jews back to Israel. Sometime after this, from 538, we come to 483 with the opening events in the book of Esther. Now, about 15 years after the book of Esther, there'll be a second return of the people of Israel from exile that will be led by Ezra. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 7 through 10. The first six chapters of the book of Ezra record Zerubbabel's return. The last half of Ezra covers something much later when Ezra himself led a return. And then finally, Nehemiah also leads a group of Jews back to Israel 13 years after Ezra. So that gives you some idea of where we are with Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. If you were actually going to place these books historically, the book of Esther takes place in between the first half and the second half of Ezra and before the book of Nehemiah as well. So, the scene is set. You've got some idea of the history that we're looking at here. The scene of the king's banquet is going to lead us into a comparison or a contrast between Esther and the queen Vashti. Vashti shows up there in verses 10 through 12. So we're going to jump down from skipping some of the details of the feast down to verses 10 through 12 for the next part of the story. On the seventh day of the feast, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcas, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty. 
for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Now, we're not told in these verses why Queen Vashti decided to not come when she was bidden to come by her king, her husband. We can speculate, and there has been a lot of speculation that has arisen on this point, but the point of the passage is not to make a hero out of Vashti or to make a villain out of Vashti. The point of the passage is just to show us that the king loses his queen. And this is all just to set up the story of God's providence of how another queen takes her place and that this is according to God's plan. Now, I mentioned that it's according to God's plan, but nowhere in the book does the author do so. The book of Esther is somewhat unique. It's one book out of two in the Bible that don't mention the name of God anywhere in the chapters. You might be able to guess what the other book of the Bible is that doesn't mention God's name. The Song of Solomon. So neither the Song of Solomon or the book of Esther mention God. And those are the only two books out of the 66 books of the Bible that don't mention it. And God is very subtle in his storytelling in the book of Esther. And while nowhere explicitly mentioned, the providence of God, the goodness of God, the will of God in orchestrating the events, the poetic justice that we're going to see, the amazing coincidences that we're going to see, all of this just screams out, that God is the one who is directing these things, even though it's never explicitly stated in the text. And I really like that about the book of Esther. Some people don't like the subtlety, and they wish that it would be more explicit in saying that God orchestrated all of these things. But I think that subtlety is a wonderful literary tool, and I'm glad that the author of the book of Esther has used it in this way. And I think it serves great purpose and brings great effect to the reading and study of this book. So we see God's purpose in removing Queen Vashti from her royal position. Whether you want to view her as a hero for rejecting what might be an immoral command, although the scripture doesn't make it very clear, or whether you see her as an unsubmissive, disobedient woman who deserves to be removed, whatever the case, however you want to read it, that's not the main point. We want to move on to her replacement, and that is Esther. So come with me to chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. Esther is chosen as queen here in chapter 2. And here I want to read a little bit more of the text for us, starting in verse 2. The king's young men who attended him said to the king, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now, there was a Jew in Susa the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Notice the historical details. This is not a myth. This is not a story written hundreds of years later. It's got the genealogy. It's got the names of the eunuchs. It's got all of the historical details here that let us know this is a historical record. 
and people have doubted it because it reads so much like a fictional work with providence and it seems like, well, could it really happen this way? Yes, that's the whole point. It really happened this way and this is a not fictional story. This is our God who directs all things after the counsel of his will. So, he was carried away from Jerusalem, that is Kish, the great-great-grandfather, Mordecai, Jer, Shimei, Kish, something like that, carried away from Jerusalem with Jeconiah, king of Judah. And we see Mordecai in verse 7 was bringing up Hadassah, that's her Hebrew name, but she was called Esther among the people of Susa. Just like Daniel had a Babylonian name, so we find that Hadassah has a uh, Persian name, Esther. And she is the daughter of his uncle. So Mordecai would be her much older cousin who acted as a father figure. For she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So, When the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So, what we see here in these verses is that the king has a harem. And a harem is not a good idea. And the Bible is not here approving of kings having harems. The Bible is recording what was happening in history. And there's a lot of things that happen in history that the Bible records that the Bible is not approving of. How do we know when we're reading through the text of a book like Esther, and it doesn't stop every moment and say, well, this was right, and this was wrong, and this was right, and this was wrong. How do we know what was right and what was wrong? What is given to us as an example to follow, and what's just given as a history of what people did, then usually people are doing the wrong thing. Well, that's why God gave us the law. He starts off the Bible with the law so that we can know what is right and what is wrong. And we compare what people are doing with what God said in his law to be able to say, okay, God approves of this. God does not approve of this. And that's the wonderful thing about the Bible. It interprets itself. And God put it in a a wonderful order, and he's very wise in doing so. And God, in the law, had commanded the kings of Israel not to multiply wives for themselves. If they're not supposed to multiply wives for themselves, they're also not supposed to have a harem. And God had made it very clear in the beginning what his ideas for marriage were supposed to be for all mankind, kings not exempted. So, sadly, this beautiful young Jewish woman is taken into custody to be a part of the king's harem, probably against their will. The Bible's not explicit, but that's probably how we're intended to read that. And she like Daniel before her, finds favor in the eyes of the king's steward who is in charge. Remember the story of Daniel? How he and his friends were taken captive and taken to the court of the king of Babylon and they were to be trained on how to be officials in his court. 
Well, this is a similar situation, but instead of dealing with young men, we're dealing with young women. And the young women aren't being trained to be officials in the court. They're trained to be a potential wife. And here, God gives this Jewish woman favor in the eyes of the steward who is in charge, the same way he did in Daniel chapter 1 with Daniel and his friends. So God has a plan, and we see that already in place here. And that idea of gaining favor in the eyes of man is something that's going to be a theme throughout this book. This is one of the things that God does in order to bring his plans to fulfillment. We see it in many places in Scripture. So, Esther is going to be beautified for a year with all of the beauty treatments that are known in ancient media and Persia. And then she's going to have her night with the king, and the king is going to decide which out of all of these women he loves the most and wants to make his queen. Verses 15 to 18. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, notice it even includes her father's name. That would not be necessary if this is a fictional story. If it's a myth that's made up, you don't have to come up with names for the dad who died. This is all part of the historical record. She's the daughter of Abihail, who is the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, and it's her turn to go in to the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, again, this is eyewitness account that remembers the month, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So, concubines were the way things were done. It's pretty ugly, but that's the situation that they were living in. And God is able to bring good out of evil. That's one of the big themes of the book of Esther and of all of Scripture. Now, after having set up this replacement of Vashti with Esther, now we're ready for the next comparison and contrast. There's a man named Haman who's going to be introduced to us in chapter 3. And that Haman, like the former queen, is exalted in the house of the king. And we're going to see how Haman also gets removed from his place and replaced by a Jew. And that is going to be Mordecai. So we've got Vashti replaced by Esther, and we're going to see throughout the rest of the book, it's the story about how Haman gets replaced by Mordecai. So while we call this the book of Esther, and she is the main character, it's really the book of Esther, Mordecai, and Haman. These three. Let's introduce the villain of the story here in chapter 3. I want to read for you verses 1 through 11. Now, after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him, and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, 
they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So Mordecai is not bowing to the king's right-hand man, even though it's been royally decreed. And the reason why, when he's explaining it to the officials who are asking him, he says, well, it's because I'm a Jew. And so apparently he's saying, I have religious reasons. I have a religious worship that prevents me from bowing down and worshiping Haman the way that the king has commanded. And so this is another example in scripture. And we talked about this a couple of years ago when we were in Romans chapter 13 and we had our extended series on how God's people, those who fear the Lord, are supposed to act when we have a conscience issue with some command, some law that comes to us from an authority, whether it's the king or whether it's a governor or a local official. And so here we see another example of where, as a matter of conscience, a godly man, and Mordecai does appear to be a godly man throughout the text of Esther, refuses a command and instruction from the authorities for reasons of conscience. And the officials who talk with him about it, they're like, well, we'll have to go talk with Haman and see whether or not he thinks that's a good reason, whether or not he thinks that you can have a religious exemption from this command from the king. So Mordecai is there at the gate. We could read about this in the previous chapter because he's concerned about Esther. And so he sits at the king's gate asking how she's doing, keeping in touch with his young cousin that he has brought up. And he even is involved with saving the king's life as he overhears a conversation between two of the king's eunuchs in chapter 2, verse 21, who were plotting to kill the king. And Mordecai let Esther know, and Esther let the king know, and the plot was foiled and was written down in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So that's the situation here with Mordecai and with Haman and how they are interacting with one another. Let's see what Haman thinks of Mordecai's religious exemption. Verse 5, back in chapter 3, verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. So he might not have noticed it, but then his servants come and tell them, well, there's this guy at the gate who is not bowing down, and we talked with him about it, and this is what he said. And So Haman hears about this, and he is filled with fury. How dare he? But he disdained, that is, Haman disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He's like, no, no, that's not enough for my revenge to just get this one guy. Because they had made known to him the people of Mordecai. He said, the reason why I'm not bowing down is because I'm a Jew. And so Haman says, well, I can't just get rid of this one Jew. I've got to get rid of all the Jews if they've got these kind of religious views that they're not going to obey the king's command in order to give me the worship and the honor that I think is due me. So he sought to destroy all the Jews. That's quite a statement right there. Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. And the kingdom of Ahasuerus covers the whole population of the Jews. I don't know if any Jews lived outside of the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. So, that is the plot. That is the crisis that is facing the people. Let's see whether or not Haman is able to carry this into practice. Now, we're going to skip chapter 3 and come down to chapter 4. I want to read all of chapter 4 because this is a pivotal, important chapter in the text. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, that these letters had been sent out, Haman convinced the king that it was in his best interest to eliminate this people out of his domain. 
They sent letters to every province, and the decree was issued, and the couriers went out. When Mordecai learned about this plot against his people, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Stop there for a moment. Can you imagine being a Jew in this time, hearing this news? I mean, what if we in our country found out that you know, the president had issued a decree or Congress had passed a law that now Christianity was outlawed and that anyone who persisted in maintaining a, a biblical profession of faith was going to be executed and all your property confiscated. That's the situation they were in. That's what they faced. The highest authority, the king, issued the decree that all the Jews were going to be wiped out. And there was a large outcry from among the Jews, crying out to God, God, why would you allow this? What good could possibly come from this? What have we done wrong that God has turned his back on us and broken his covenant and allowed us to be destroyed by our enemies? When God appears to be most absent, he's testing us. He's testing the Jewish people here, finding out, do you believe that I'm going to keep my promises to Abraham. There's a law written on the books by the law of the Medes and the Persians, which is irrevocable. There's no way of changing a royal decree once it has been stamped and set out. According to their law, even the king himself can't change this law. This is a severe test of the faith of the people of Israel. Do you believe what I promised Abraham, that I would be your God and you would be my people? and that I would have a seed from Abraham that would inherit the land of Israel forever and ever. Doesn't look like it. Looks like God is going to fail on his promise. Now, there's another question that arises here concerning the person of Haman. I should address it. Back in chapter 3, verse 1, when it says that Haman is the Agagite, This reminds many people of what happened with Saul and the king of the Amalekites whose name was Agag. And people are wondering, what does it mean when it says he's an Agagite? Does that mean that he is a descendant of King Agag, the last king of the Amalekites whom God had commanded Israel to completely wipe out, to completely destroy men, women, children, young and old? Many people have thought so. I'm not convinced that this reference to Haman being an Agagite would take his line back to Agag because Agag and his people were annihilated. Agag was the only one who was spared during the destruction of the Amalekites and Agag himself was hewn to pieces by the prophet even though Saul had disobeyed. Samuel carried out the instruction and put an end to Agag. And so there's been some kind of stories that have been invented on how some of Agag's descendants could have continued and that 500 years later, Haman is still looking for revenge against the Jews for the destruction of the Amalekites. The text doesn't say that's his motivation. The text says his motivation is is that he's a proud man 
who has been given a royal command that everyone is supposed to bow down and worship him, and he's discovered that Mordecai is a Jew, and that's why Mordecai won't bow down and worship him. So his animosity doesn't go back 500 years in the text. It goes back to the moment that he's learned that these Jewish people won't obey this command. And so I'm going to say maybe Haman was a descendant of Agag, but even if he is, it's not his motivation. There's no indication in the text that he remembers this or knows this or is seeking revenge for what Saul did to the Amalekites. All right, so back to chapter 4. So Mordecai's in sackcloth, he's outside the gate of the king, and verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. Your cousin Mordecai's out there weeping and mourning in sackcloth, and so Esther wants to know what the problem is. So she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Esther has a natural fear in her heart of the penalty of death coming unbidden into the king's presence in his royal hall. Mordecai shows great faith in this instance, especially in verse 14. Notice verse 14 again. He says, If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Now once again, you appreciate the subtlety of the author in this text that he doesn't mention that God is going to save his people. He just says... Relief, salvation, it will arise. He's confident, he's sure that the Jewish people are not going to be destroyed at this time. He knows it's impossible for the Jewish people to be destroyed. And how does he know that? Well, because of God's promises, because of God's covenant. 
So here we see his faith in action. It's not explicitly laid out. You're supposed to be able to understand why a man is able to make such a confident statement like this in the face of almost certain doom. The law has gone out. It can't be revoked. How could relief possibly come to the Jews? Well, maybe Queen Esther. But if not Queen Esther, Mordecai has no idea where it might come from, but he's confident it will come. You don't have to know how things are going to work out in order to know that things are going to work out. Let me say that again. You don't have to know how things are going to work out in order to know that things are going to work out. That's faith. So Mordecai doesn't know how things are going to work out. And he doesn't tell Esther how things are going to work out. He just says, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And that's a good example for us. When we're talking about the providence of God, we're talking about the God who orders all things after the counsel of his will, the God who keeps his promises, the God who's in control. We don't know what God is going to do. Only what God has said. Do we know that God is going to do? But God had not given them a word of prophecy on what was going to happen. There was no prophet that came on the scene and said, Queen Esther, if you go and risk your life, the king will spare you. And if you go and you ask the king for power to save your people, he will give it to you. God doesn't give that promise. He just leaves Esther and Mordecai in the situation and says, do what's right. Do what you have the power to do. And God had given Esther a position of power, a position of privilege, in order to be able to do something that no one else had the power or the position to do. And so Mordecai says, this might be why. This might be the reason. He doesn't say it is. He says it might be the reason why you are queen. I mean, out of all the women who could have been chosen as queen, somehow this young Jewish girl became queen. Maybe there's a reason for that. There's a reason for everything, whether we see it and understand it or not. Now, we continue on then in chapter 5. I want to summarize verses 1 through 8 for Esther's banquet. She goes in, the king does spare her life, God gives her favor in the eyes of the king, and she invites the king and Haman to a banquet where she's going to make her request known. However, for some reason, the time doesn't seem right or, or something, uh, she delays asking the king her petition, her request, until the second day. She invites them back for a second banquet. Now, I want to pick up the story there in between the first and the second banquet in chapter 5, verse 9. So Haman, he's coming out of the palace, and he's joyful and glad. I have feasted with the king and the queen. I was the only one that was there for this private dinner that Esther invited the king to. But when Haman saw Mordecai, in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife Zeresh in order to vent. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he advanced him far above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow also I'm invited by her together with the king. Yet, there's a key word, yet 
All this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Here's the heart of sin. Here's the heart of bitterness. Here's the heart of hatred. Here's the heart of covetousness that loses its joy and delight in everything that God gives for the one thing that the soul wants that it doesn't have. That's the very essence of folly. You see it here. Praise God that he does not deliver us over into evil desires. Praise God that he has set the soul free from covetousness, from idolatry, from the kind of folly that loses its delight in everything that God has given because of the one thing that God doesn't want us to have. Does this remind you of anything? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? God gave Adam a beautiful, perfect wife. God gave Adam dominion over all the creatures. He placed him in the midst of this garden to work that was without thorns and thistles and was just a delight. And God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden every day. And he said, there's just one thing that you're not supposed to do. Don't eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they lost everything because they wanted the one thing that God told them not to have. That's sin. That's foolishness. That's what you see in the heart of people that's driving people insane still this day. So much of the mental illness that's around us is just this. I have no joy in anything because I don't have the one thing that God told me I can't have. So that's Haman. An insight into the heart of sin all of this is worth nothing to me so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Hatred. Then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. When the heart of sinful man does what it pleases, nothing good comes from it. If you follow the sinful inclinations of your heart to do what you think is going to make you happy, what you think is going to satisfy you, it will not satisfy you, it will not make you happy, but in fact, it will destroy you. This is the, the case of Haman. He thinks he's going to hang Mordecai and that this is going to make him happy. Well, let's see what happens. Haman's downfall begins then in chapter 6. After having seen his bitterness of heart, I'm going to read all of chapter 6 as we see the great turnaround begun. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. It just so happened the king can't sleep. It just so happened they brought in the book of the chronicles to help him fall asleep. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who's in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Just so happens, 
You know, that's why people think this is a made-up story. It's like, no way, that couldn't happen. It happened. He's coming in to ask the king to have Mordecai hung, and that night, the king couldn't sleep. And he read in the book about how Mordecai had saved his life, and he's thinking, how do I honor Mordecai? Wow. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. Verse 5, And the king said, let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. And let the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew. What? I mean, this had to... You can just imagine the thunderstruck heart of Haman at this moment. And so, tells him, he sits at the king's gate. Yeah, I know he sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, with his head covered. And Haman told his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Zeresh, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, this is a bad omen, if he's of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. So these wise men, these counselors, and his wife, they know something about the Jews. And they've observed God's care and God's providence for the Jewish people. And they're like, "Uh uh-oh, you might have picked the wrong person to hate. And... While they were yet talking, verse 14, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. One thing after another. And he's got to be thinking, well, at least I get to go to the feast with the king and the queen. This is something that can make me feel better after having been so humiliated with my enemy. So the king and Haman went in to the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. 
And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Now we'll get to chapters 8 through 10 momentarily. But I want to stop here and see how God's sovereignty brings about this amazing turn of events and this poetic justice that shows us that God is in control. Proverbs chapter 26, verse 27 says this, Whoever digs a pit will fall into it, and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. You guys have seen the Wile E. Coyote cartoon where he's got the stone ready to go down and crush the helpless little roadrunner. And of course the stone comes back and crushes the coyote. And we all laugh. Well, here's Haman. He's the coyote. He built the gallows for Mordecai the Jew. And who is hanged on the gallows? Here, the wicked takes the place of the righteous and receives the punishment. God has a way of bringing about justice. And he does it sometimes through miracles like Moses, the plagues on Egypt, and sometimes just through happenstance. God, in his providence, shows himself even mightier than I think through those miracles. Now, another verse that I think is very important to keep in mind here is Proverbs 21, verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Who was it that turned the king's heart to promote Haman? How did Haman get to be the right-hand man of the most powerful man in the world? God put him there. We're told in the book of Daniel that God appoints the ruler's and that he sets over at the lowest of men. Well, here's Agag, a low man, a man of low character, a man of pride and jealousy, bitterness in his heart, and God sets him up on a high place. And God sets a man like Agag up on a high place so that God can bring him... Uh, Haman, thank you. Haman the Agagite. And God puts Haman on this high place so that he can have a great fall. God is a storyteller. Don't judge the story until you get to the end of the story. There's reasons why God allows for the bad things to happen in the story, just like our storytellers today allow bad things to happen in the story. And I've got to tell my kids while we're watching it, don't turn off the movie yet. You've got to wait until it turns around. It's going to get better. Things have to get bad before you have the resolution. And so God allows his people to be facing annihilation before he saves them. And God does it through the heart of the king. 
Now, why does the Bible use the king's heart as the example of the heart that God turns wherever he will? Well, it's because the king is the one among us who is the most free. The king is the one who has no one above him telling him what to do. He can do whatever he wants. He can promote whoever he wants. He can kill whoever he wants. He can make any law that he wants. He's not just a president who's got to give account to the Congress, but he is a king who is himself the lawmaker, who is himself the judge, who is himself the leader of the army. All the power in one man. And God says, that man who the world looks at as most free and subject to none, I control his every motion of his heart. Do you believe that? You look at the evil people in the world today that God has raised up to a position of authority and power. Do you believe that God has put them in that position of authority and power for a purpose, for a reason? Do you believe that God is directing their decisions, even their most evil inclinations, not being responsible for their evil? God is in no way tempting them or leading them to do evil, but that God is using the evil desires of their heart in order to set everything up so that his story has the conclusion that he has determined from the beginning. That's why the book of Esther is given to us. About God's people living among the Gentiles. And here we are, God's people living among a people that don't know him. Ungodly leaders who seek to destroy us. And are we afraid? Do we believe in God's promise? He's told us what's going to happen at the end of the story. So don't worry about whatever is happening now that God hasn't talked about. It's all lining up. Now, the new decree is given in chapters 8 and 9. Esther speaks on behalf of the Jews. The king promotes Mordecai over the household of Haman. He gives him the position of authority, gives him the royal seal, and tells him, you can write whatever you want to the Jews. I can't repeal the law that has been made. I made a law, Haman made the law, but I gave him the authority to do it, that on a certain day, the Jews were able to be destroyed by their enemies. There'd be no penalty, there'd be no opposition to the enemies of the Jews. On a certain day, they have that authority, and I can't change that. And so Mordecai, being a wise man, he says, well, if we can't change that law, we can write another law that's going to turn the tide. And that's what they do. Let's see what Mordecai comes up with there in chapter 8. So, he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus in verse 10. Chapter 8, verse 10. And he sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews, who were in every city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province, being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service. They rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And we see that it turns out well. Mordecai has been promoted. This new decree has gone out from the king that the Jews are allowed to defend themselves. And you know what? If you're living in the provinces, you're the governor, 
and you got, okay, we got this one order, and now it's been added to by this other order. It doesn't take a genius to figure out whose side the king is on now, right? Oh, the king has changed his mind. The king wants to support the Jews. He can't take away the old law, so he gave us this new law. So who are the wise governors going to support in the upcoming conflict? The Jews, obviously. Mordecai is now the right-hand man. Do you want to join the side that wants to destroy the Jews or do you want to help the side that is going to help the Jews? Well, anyone who is out for self-interest, as most people are, is now going to support the Jews. And with that support, the Jews have all that they need by God's providence and the power that God has given them in order to destroy their enemies. And that's what happens in chapter 9. God turns the tables not only on Haman, but on all of the enemies of the Jews. You see that God allowed Haman to not just take personal vengeance on one man, but to seek vengeance upon a whole race of people because God wanted to give the Jews a day of victory over their enemies. Now, this sounds bad to modern people. Modern people are like, hey, you know, it's wrong to take vengeance on your enemies. Doesn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies and do good to those who despitefully use us and, and all of that? Well, there is such a thing as war. And there is such a thing as one nation and another nation. And the Jews have been trodden underfoot and been hated by the nations for a long time. And so there is such a thing as justice, retributive justice. And God gives retributive justice to his people of Israel on this day so that everyone who has made a practice of hating Israel, everyone who is gleeful and looking forward to the chance to annihilate the Jews on this day because of their hatred in their heart for the Jews who are really God's people, that God says, okay, now it's the Jews' turn. Now they get to be the ones who destroy their enemies, like King David destroyed the enemies of Israel. You can read about that in chapter 9. And also then, the Feast of Purim is inaugurated. You see that in chapter 9, verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as the days go on, which the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So the Jews accepted and that's what they began to do. This is the beginning of a feast among the Jewish people that has continued from the 5th century BC, as it's recorded here, up until today. This year, 2023, the Feast of Purim was celebrated among the Jewish people in March. March 6th and 7th in 2023 was the Feast of Purim. There's one other feast that's not a Mosaic feast that is celebrated among the Jewish people, and that's the Feast of Hanukkah. Do you know about the Feast of Hanukkah? It's the Festival of Lights, and that celebrates the victory of the Jewish people over Antiochus Epiphanes, who had sought to destroy Judaism. And so as mankind has at certain times sought to eliminate the Jewish people and to wipe out Judaism from the planet. And this is a satanic motivation. Satan hates the people of Israel because they are God's chosen people. He wants to destroy them because all of God's promises of victory lie in the people of Israel and their Messiah. So that from their beginning, God's enemy sought to destroy them through men like Haman. And it did not succeed. It didn't work out well for him. It didn't work out well for Antiochus Epiphanes. 
celebrated in the festival of Hanukkah. It didn't work out well for Adolf Hitler, and it won't work out well for the Antichrist. He's coming. He might be alive on the earth right now. He might be in position to make a treaty with the people of Israel that he is going to break, and he's going to seek to destroy the people of Israel. And God will allow that, just like he has allowed the persecutions of Haman and Antiochus and Hitler, and he will destroy the destroyer, and he will save his people. Well, the Feast of Purim comes from the fact that God ordained that Haman, the enemy, would cast lots to find out which day it was that the people of Israel were going to be destroyed. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. You can't roll dice without God being in control. And the king can't do anything without God directing the heart of the king. And so what God says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, we need the reminder of, we need this constant reminder that God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God is the one who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And you know what? He's predestined you to an inheritance. You're predestined to an inheritance and nothing and no one can change it. So don't be afraid. No matter what God allows, no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much God seems to be absent, you can't figure out how it's going to work out. Trust. It is going to work out. And that God's promises will be fulfilled.